We are studying a little letter that when I say the book of Philippians, you know, the Bible has books. Well, these are in the New Testament, most of them are letters that were written to uh, believers, to Christians, and they talk about the essentials of the Christian faith, and they talk about how to live out our faith in a very complicated world in their day, a very hostile world, and those letters resonate with us as well. They were written for us as much as they were written for them. Let me remind you where and when we are. I always like to set ourselves in, in history and geography, but the time is about 62 AD. Paul is in Rome. He has been preaching for a couple of decades and throughout the whole known world around the Mediterranean. But he has been imprisoned in Israel, basically in Judea, and then appealed to the emperor because he was a Roman citizen. And so he's being held in Rome on charges brought by the Jews that say he is teaching things, that's gonna sound eerily, eerily uh, like our own time. Did he break a law? No, he did not. Was he accused of breaking a law? No, he did not. What he was accused of was holding beliefs and teaching things that weren't Roman, that weren't acceptable in the Roman world. And so he's, while he's in prison, he wrote a letter back over here to the city of Philippi. Philippi is a very big, important city at that time, and there is a group of believers. 11 years earlier, Paul had gone through there and preached the gospel, and many people believed. And so there was a church there, probably a number of churches meeting in houses, but they considered themselves not different churches, they considered themselves a body of believers, brothers and sisters following Christ, regardless of where they met. And so Paul understands his circumstances are very bad because he's gonna go before Caesar and if he's found guilty, he'll be killed. I mean, there's, it's not like, you know, you're gonna get 90 days probation, not the way this thing worked. You lose, you die. You win, you're set free. The Philippians are also undergoing a lot of persecution. In our last lesson, I reminded you what happened when he was there in 51 AD and how he was put in jail there. He was beaten by the authorities there for preaching this good news this of Jesus. And I know sometimes, this is a side, I'll take a brief aside. I know sometimes we think to ourselves, surely preaching the good news of God's love for you, treating people with compassion and forgiveness, how in the world can anybody be upset with Christians for that? All I wanna do is refer you to the historical record. And that is they crucified Jesus, they didn't make him mayor of Jerusalem. And they put Paul in prison and that's what he was preaching. So I I'm just trying to say, we need to be realistic about this. The message of the gospel is so, it is extremely subversive to the worldview in our secular society. It is subversive to the worldview of any secular society at any time. It's subversive to the narrative of North Korea and China and Great Britain and the United States and ancient Rome and every secular nation there has ever been. It's subversive. It's not 
terrible, it's not killing people or doing bad things, but it is very subversive. So Paul, knowing his situation and knowing theirs, wants to teach them the secret of being content. And the, at the very end of the letter, this is where I like to start because this is where he's going. In Philippians 4.11, this is the very last part of the letter, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, because I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. Let me stop and you just let that sink in for a minute. I mean, sometimes we just read the Bible and just read right through it. If somebody on YouTube came out and said, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. Well, actually, there are probably about 100 people doing that. If somebody actually accomplished it and said that, they'd have millions, millions of viewers saying, I want to know that. I want to know how to be content regardless of my circumstances. Paul's writing this in jail. Paul's been through more than you and I could get through more suffering than we would do in 10 lifetimes. And he said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want, and apparently whether he's in jail or he's free. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And so what we've been doing is go back to the beginning of the letter and follow him to say, how do you get to that statement? And so we call it the secrets of contentment. And in chapter one, what Paul said was, an attitude of gratitude resets our perspective. In other words, he starts writing when he's in jail and the very first thing he does in this letter, he starts giving thanks. I think I told you when we were in that lesson, I'd be writing, hey, anybody know a good lawyer? Hey, how about that bail fund, you know, get me out of here, you know? He doesn't, he just says, I am so grateful and I rejoice at your faith and your faithfulness under difficult times. And so this attitude of gratitude resets our perspective. Here's one of the great paradoxes of life is your natural thought would be the way to be content is to focus on myself and my needs. And the paradox of this is, Jesus said this, every writer in the New Testament is gonna say the same thing. Paradoxically, the secret of contentment does not come from focusing on myself. It comes from focusing outside myself. And the first step is being grateful, counting your blessings, not your problems. The second secret is he goes into chapter two. Now the chapter divisions in, in the Bible are man-made. They, originally it was just one letter. But as we go into what we've called broken up as chapter two, he says, okay, now that you've got your head out of your self-centeredness a little and you're looking around and counting your blessings, you're giving, you're giving thanks. And so it's not about you all the time. The second secret as he goes into chapter two is it's not all about me. And in fact, I am part of something bigger that God is doing. And that's the second perspective changer he wants to talk about, is it's not all about me. Not everything that happens in my life is about me. Not everything that happens in this world is about me. In fact, a better way to think of this is I am part of what God is doing, not the more self-centered gospel that's really popular in the Western world, and that is 
God gets to be a part of what I am doing. Have you ever noticed how self-centric some of the things that you hear in Western Christianity are? And that's because we're individualistic cultures and we kind of want to modify Christianity to be about me. But the reality is the New Testament teaches it's not all about us. And in fact, the secret of contentment relies on the fact that we realize we are actually part of something bigger that God is doing. In the last lesson, I quoted the very beginning of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. This is, this is exactly a biblical thing to say. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is greater than your own personal fulfillment. That's another way of saying contentment doesn't come by chasing personal fulfillment. It's uh, greater than your peace of mind, even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you wanna know why you're placed on this planet, you have to begin with God. We are part of something God is doing. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. This kind of segues into what Paul's gonna talk about next. Attitude of gratitude to reset my perspective, a recognition that it's not all about me, I'm actually part of something bigger that God is doing. But Paul goes on into the end of chapter two and into chapter three, and I want you just to notice as we walk through it, how his view of the world is completely inseparable from what God is doing in the world. In other words, he believes he's part of something that God is doing so much that he thinks God is immersed in what's happening in his life. Let me show you what I mean. So he moves on and he says, listen, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. What does that mean? That, let me translate that for you. That means if the Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. You guys ever heard that saying? Yeah, okay, well, you weren't farmers in Kentucky, you probably didn't hear that saying. But anyway, my point is, what he's saying is, if the Lord Jesus is willing, this is what we're going to do. He understands, this isn't all about me and my plans. You've probably heard the old statement, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans. You know, and then Paul says, this is really more reliant on God because I'm part of his scheme, he's not part of my scheme. But he says, I'd like to send Timothy, this is a young man, who was with Paul when he was there originally, so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Not very self-centered, is he? Very other-focused. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things will go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I might be able to come to. So what's he saying? He said, I have a death sentence hanging over my head. So he happens to be in jail, but I hate to, this is spoiler alert. We all have a death sentence hanging over our head. We just aren't sure when and what's gonna cause it. And I don't mean that to be facetious. I mean that as we're in the same situation. We just don't think about it that way. But we'll look at his attitude. His attitude is, I don't know how things are gonna go with me because it's not about me. I'm not sure how God will dispose of this situation. But then he goes on and he said, and I think it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, odd name, but if you wanna use it, I don't think many baby names are using it right now, it'd be very unique. Little Epaphroditus is another worker with Paul 
and he became very ill. He said, I feel like I need to send him back to you. He's my brother, my fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's also your messenger whom you sent to take care of me. So the Philippians gathered up a little bit of money and they said he's in jail. We know what the food's like in jail. Food in a Roman jail was almost non-existent. You were, you were supposed to take care of your own needs or your friends were. And so they just sent Epaphroditus and said, here, take some money and go see how Paul's doing. Well, when he got there, he must have gotten sick. COVID, probably. And so it said, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And listen to this, indeed he was and he almost died. But God had mercy on him and on me too to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So as we move through this, you see that, he, that Paul says, once you get outside yourself and you start looking around and you realize God's working, you realize how much God is working. You notice we can't read a paragraph in this letter without him seeing God's hand in what's going on in his life, that God is not just has a plan. It's not like the deists who said, God wound the world up like a clock and set it down and stepped back and said, let's let things go. Paul obviously sees God as very involved in what's going on in the world and involved in what's going on in his life. So I wanna take just a little bit of an excursus here. I wanna take a little sideline to make a, a point about this because I know if you're like me, what you're thinking at this point is, it is amazing that Paul saw God's hand in everything that's going on. But I'll tell you, it's hard for me to see God's hand in what's happening in our world sometimes, what's happening in my life sometimes. I just don't see far enough down the road. Now, when I look in the rearview mirror of my life, I can see God's hand. I can give thanks, I can be grateful, but in the middle of this, I just don't see where this is going. I don't see how I'm part of a plan. I can't tell, is it about me? Is it about somebody else? And so it's hard to see that. It's hard to see in certain events in our lives, I'll go even further, how that's even possibly part of God's plan. In other words, what's happening is so bad, how could God really be okay with that? So I wanna tell you a story that you know. I'm gonna take all the way back to the book of Genesis. I wanna to talk to you about Joseph and I'll tell it fairly quickly because probably many of you know the Joseph story. If you don't, there's a great, the tail end of the book of Genesis, first book in, in the Bible, the tail end of it is the Joseph cycle, the Joseph story. And so Joseph is one of 12 brothers and he's one of the younger brothers and God has, selected him and given him some dreams. And he speaks to his dad about these dreams and it's as though God is saying to him, I'm gonna elevate you. Well, of course, his older brothers, they don't like this at all. And you know what makes it worse? Their dad, Jacob, likes him better than the other brothers. So he keeps him at home when he sends the other brothers out to take the sheep and do things like that. And, and he just protects him you know, keeps him home, takes care of him. You're my favorite. And the other boys go out and they begin to resent this. Well, one day, Joseph is sent out to the brothers to find them, find them and the sheep wherever they've gone, many, several miles away uh, to graze the sheep and basically tell them, you know, your mom wants you to come home for a you know, family gathering or something. And so Joseph goes to find them. 
He finds them, and when he does, his brothers say, you know, it's about time we settled the score with old Joseph. And so they take Joseph and decide they're going to kill him, and they'll just tell their dad that something happened to him, wild animal got him. But one of the brothers has a soft heart and a bit of a conscience, and he says, we can't kill our brother. And they said, okay, fine. We'll throw him in this pit. And so they throw him in a cistern. You know, just a big pit, he can't get out of it. And then while they're eating, they see some traders coming along headed for Egypt. And they go, we might as well make some money out of this deal. They sold him as a slave to these traders who then took him down to Egypt and resold him there. And he ends up in the household of an Egyptian, kind of head of the guard for Pharaoh, you know, for the king. And uh, he's a slave. And so at that point, you gotta be thinking if you're Joseph, okay, I don't see how God has a plan. If God has a plan, he forgot about me because I was my dad's favorite son and now I'm a slave and I'm scrubbing toilets in Potiphar the Egyptian's household, okay? So then though, he does his very best and sure enough, he's bright and he rises to the head of the household. He's like the chief butler. You know, he's in charge of the other household staff and he's very trusted and Potiphar says, man, you run this place better than anybody I've ever seen. So things are looking up for Joseph. He goes, well, maybe this is part of God's plan. Maybe I'm supposed to come to Egypt and have a good job and have a good life here. Meet a girl, settle down, have a couple of kids, play soccer on the weekends, watch ESPN, you know, whatever. Maybe God does have a plan for me. But then Potiphar's wife gets the hots for him. I think you can say that. Anyway, so she decides that she wants Joseph and Joseph's like, no, ma'am, I'm running away. But she accuses him of inappropriate action and Potiphar, he's angry, of course. And so he has him thrown into jail, throws him into prison. He's in a dark hole in prison. And Joseph goes, for the second time, boy, it is hard to see God's hand in this. I'm not sure how I'm part of something bigger going on here, but if I am, I have the worst role in this movie, okay? Not a good role in the movie. But then a couple of guys from the royal household end up in jail because Pharaoh thinks they were plotting. And so you got the chief baker and the steward in jail with him and they're telling their woes. And Joseph says, well, I did have a dream and I can tell you, I think what's gonna happen. And he says to one of them, you're gonna be fine and you're gonna be about eight inches shorter here soon when Pharaoh cuts your head off. And so they get out and sure enough, it happens just like he said. And so the steward goes, I gotta remember that Joseph guy. He told me right, but he forgets. And Joseph like, you have to be kidding me. And Joseph spends two more years in that prison He's gonna be there forever. It's not like you have due process or anything in ancient Egypt. And so for two more years, he lives in this little hovel of a prison. But finally, the guy remembers when Pharaoh's had a dream, can't find anybody to tell him, you know, what is the gods saying to me? You know, what does this dream mean? And the steward goes, you know, there was this dude, what was it, a couple of years ago, has it been that long? Yeah, good old Joseph, still in prison. So he sends for him, he comes, he tells Pharaoh his dream. Pharaoh goes, you are one smart cookie. And says, you know what, I'm gonna elevate you in my kingdom and I'm gonna let you be in charge of some stuff. And Joseph does so well, 
God blesses Joseph. He becomes the number two guy in the kingdom. Pharaoh says, here's my checkbook. Here's all of my 401k. You just run this place. I'm gonna be Pharaoh and have fun. But you run this whole country, and he does. Meanwhile, back in Israel, the rest of his brothers and his dad, there are about 70 people in this big extended family at this point, there is a famine in Israel. There's a drought and a famine and people would die. I mean, tons of people would typically die uh, when that happened. And so Jacob says to the boys, we gotta get out of here. I mean, we gotta find some way to feed these little kids. And so they go to Egypt and they come in to an audience and guess who's the top guy in Egypt who's gonna decide whether or not they get to stay there? It's Joseph. So I'll make the story a little shorter. Read this latter half of Genesis. It's a powerful story. Joseph, after some, you know, some other scenes happen here, basically says, you aren't gonna believe this, but I'm your brother Joseph. And they're like, uh-oh. You know, that whole selling you into slavery, I hope you aren't still holding on to that, okay? Because I gotta admit, it was funny at the time, right? Yeah, but basically, He's, here's what he says. This is the best version, verse in the whole story. This is out of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Right at the end of Genesis, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, we have the perspective of the scripture and history, and we look back and we say, if Joseph hadn't suffered everything he did, if he hadn't somehow gotten to Egypt, if he hadn't been through what he'd been through, if he hadn't somehow gotten before Pharaoh and been successful, the Israelites would have died. Instead, they go to Egypt and Joseph is there and sets them up and they put them in great land for their flocks. They have plenty to eat, they have water. In other words, God provided for the Israelites because the 70 are all of the Israelites at this time. This is, oh, circa 1800 BC. They're all of the Israelites, and they're about to go out of the story of history completely, and yet in that circuitous way, God took care of them. And this is when Joseph realizes it's not about me. This whole thing has been part of God's plan to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Well, when we look back in history, we can see even in circumstances where it's really hard to understand how can God, if God's got a plan, I wanna talk to him because I don't like this plan. I don't see where this is going. I don't know why these things are happening. But when you look back, how many times can you look back and say, I did not think that was a good thing, but it ended up being a very good thing. Here's a great story, imagine this. This happened to me one time. Well, part of this happened to me one time. I'm not gonna exaggerate. But I remember trying to get out of Minneapolis one Friday night, it's on a business trip, trying to get home to my family. It's Friday, and let me just say, you don't make it out. Minneapolis is not like there are a ton of, of flights out of Minneapolis, right? So I wanna get out, wanna get home, wanna see my family. So I go to the airport, and I get there. I'm running late. And I get there and they are closing the door. So 
I run right up and I go, oh, I am so glad I made it. Just open that door back up and off I go. Well, apparently there's some rule that came down from Mount Sinai with Moses that says once the door is closed, the door, thou shalt not open the door again, okay? So I don't get on this plane. Well, needless to say, that was kind of pre-Christian days. And so, you know, I was, I was dark mind. I was not having a contentment moment. You know, I've learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. And I'm sitting down there, and I don't know, maybe this is God and his sense of humor. And so he said to me, this was a bad thing. I go, you bet this is a bad thing. And I am really ticked off. And I, this is not, things aren't going very well. And he said, what if that plane crashes and everybody on it dies? And then I thought, well, that would be unfortunate for everybody but me in this circumstance now that I think about it. Now, that plane did not crash. Everybody did not die. But what if it had? And but my point is simply this. I sat there and all of a sudden I realized, even in my pagan brain, okay, my pagan brain realizes you don't know enough most of the time to know whether something is as good as it seems or as bad as it seems, do we? And that brings me to the third secret. And the end of chapter two and chapter three, this is what Paul wants to say. Not only are you part of what God is doing, you're part of something bigger than you, but God is working in every situation for good. Even if like Joseph, you and I don't see how this plays out. Now that is a matter of faith, isn't it? You can look in the rearview mirror and say, well, it did work out that way, but you can be in the middle of something and doubt that and go, I don't know if this is gonna work out for God. In fact, I don't see how this could possibly work out for certainly my good, but it's not all about me. I don't even see how this can work out for anybody's good. Well, I'm sure that's what Joseph thought too, right? How's this gonna work out to benefit anybody? It takes a step of trust in God to believe that God is working in every situation for good. Now you realize that is the currency, if you will, of the Christian faith. Jesus didn't say, what must I do to be saved? He said, well, act real good, be real nice to people, you know, just, just be a good person. What does he say? He said, believe, and that word believe is the same word as faith and the same word as trust. So I'm just gonna interchange those. That Greek word about, you know, for God so loved the world that, uh, he gave his one and only son that everybody who believes in him, it's not mental assent. That word is our word trust. In other words, I'm bought in, I have faith. That is the essence of what God looks to us for is trusting him. And this is a statement that requires trust. I'm not gonna tell you that I can prove this in every circumstance. I'm not gonna tell you I can prove it in what's going on in your or my life. But I am gonna say that God is trustworthy. This is what you were asked to believe that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So Paul, watch as we go on, Philippians chapter three, we're into the third chapter now. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Weird thing to say from a guy in prison. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you and it's a safeguard for you. But listen to this, this is one of the most beautiful passages. If you wanna memorize some, a passage of scripture, this is a great one. Philippians three, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I can't say that. Paul could say that. Paul lost his family, lost his job, he lost his position in society, he lost his safety, he lost his freedom, and he will eventually be executed, by the way. He did lose all things. He said, I consider those things rubbish so that I could gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness or a rightness of my own that comes from the law, from my good deeds, but that which is through my trust in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and this is crazy, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to be, he said, like Christ so much, I even wanna go through hard times like Christ did because I know it's not about me. I know something's greater going on and he has an unshakable faith that God is working in all those situations. And so I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. He goes on, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect or mature or complete in my faith, but I, this is a great passage, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Let's stop right there. You gotta think about that because that's a little awkward. I press on. In other words, what's he saying? Regardless of my circumstances, I know God has a plan. I know he's working in this. And so onward, I press forward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Meaning God chose you, and this is as biblical as it gets, God chose you for a purpose. And Paul said, he took hold of me, and so I'm gonna fulfill that purpose. I'm going to do what he set me to do. Does Paul know everything he told him, wants him to do? No, he doesn't know how this is gonna turn out any more than you and I do. He just knows, I'm gonna go preach the word. I'm gonna go be faithful to go where he tells me to go and do what he tells me to do. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I don't know where this journey goes, but I do know where it ends. And it ends with God. And so whatever else happens, I'm his. I'm his woman, I'm his man, and that's the attitude that he has. He said, God's working here. I just don't see how it is, but I know where I end up in this. All of us who, and this is Paul, he's a type A kind of guy. All of us who are mature should think like this. And if you disagree with me, God will make that clear to you at some point. You know, and so, but he's right. The whole New Testament says this, Jesus on. Then it goes on, he says, now join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. There is an encouragement where we encourage one another to remember and believe that God is working in every situation for good. It's not about us, but our destiny is assured. He said, I've often told you, and now say again, even with tears, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. That's a way of saying it's all about them. Self-centeredness. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Let me translate that to what we're talking about. They want contentment, 
and they believe the way to get it is to fulfill all their needs. Paul says that's a very earthly way of thinking about this and unfortunately their destiny is to, be, is to fail. He said we eagerly await a savior because our citizenship is in heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ rules and by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. A phrase I want you to pay attention to here is this, the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. You, you read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You read in the book of Colossians that all things hold together in Christ. And what that means is this universe keeps running because God is in control. In other words, God is sovereign. That's the word that we use, is God is sovereign. Everything moves to God's will. And so Paul says, I know that God is working in every circumstance for good. He wrote another letter to a couple of them, to the believers in the city of Corinth. And I love this passage. When he's writing this letter to the people in Corinth, he's in Turkey, modern day Turkey, and he's that close to being killed. And he's been in jail, he's been beaten, etc. And he says, but we do not lose heart. Why? I would. I'd say these circumstances stink. God, what, what are you doing? You know, what, what's going on here? I don't see the point of this. Even if it's not about me, what's the point of this? I don't see it. He says, but we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? because he has an unshakable faith that God is at work. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. We don't fix our eyes on our troubles, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then another letter that Paul writes, because I want you to see the connectivity here. This isn't just Philippians. This is all through your New Testament. Is Romans, this is probably one of the most famous passages around, and I want to camp out on it for just a little bit. This is Paul speaking to believers in Rome. He wrote this letter before he got there, and when he got there, he hadn't really planned to be a prisoner. But he writes this letter, and one of the things he says, we know that in all things... Every circumstance, remember I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. In every circumstance, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Stop there for a second. Sometimes when you hear that God works for the good of those who love him, you know how I translate that in my Western self-centered way? Well, he must be doing everything to make me happy. He must be health, wealth. This, by the way, this is where the prosperity gospel comes from. He must be, it's all about me. Who knew? It's me. It's not even you guys, sorry. But it's all about me. And God is gonna work for my good. But look what it says. That's not what that's talking about. Who have been called according to his purpose. God works his will in this world and it is good for us. It may not be convenient. It may not be comfortable. Oh, and like Paul, you may lose your life for this. And yet, he said, I consider all of that rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He says, for those God foreknew, by the way, in another letter that he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus in chapter one, 
Now, I don't, God foreknew you. I, I want you to understand how much God loved you. Ephesians 1 said this, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's how much God loves you. That's how far ahead he saw. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to become like Jesus, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's a way of saying God will finish what he has started in your life. There is nothing that is powerful enough to keep God from making sure you end up at the end of this story with him. Just a powerful verse about God's sovereignty. It's all about what God is doing in the world. And God has chosen us because he loved us, loved us so much he would give his one and only son to die for us to make it possible for us to be reconciled. That's the good news. The word gospel means good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so he says, and I want you to trust me because I'm working in all things for good. I thought that little passage, I put three different translations up here. I thought we'd just stop and think about that for a minute because different, that's a notoriously difficult little Greek passage to translate. I mean, the point is obvious. God is the one who's sovereign in every circumstance and everything moves to his purpose, period. That's the meaning of that. Translates a little differently. You get that same basic idea, but for example, in the ES or the NIV, that's the New International Version translation. That's what I usually use in here because that's the Bible most people have. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The ESV, English Standard Version, a little more literal, that's what I study out of. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the NLT, the New Living Translation, wordy, a little bit looser, but conveys the idea pretty well. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So here's where we just need to stop for a minute. And I just wanna ask you this question. What would your life be like if you actually believed that was true. Now, don't feel like I'm trying to cause guilt. Don't feel like I'm accusing you of not having enough faith and none of those things. I'm including all of us in this and saying, if Paul said, I've learned the secret to be content in every circumstance, you and I have to believe this. You can't have contentment unless you realize that God is working in every circumstance for good. What would my Monday through Friday life look like if I deep down in my bones, the way Paul believed that, I really trusted it. And you said to me, Terry, what's up with this? I go, I don't know. I don't know what the meaning of this is. I don't know why this bad thing happened to me or happened to a loved one. I don't even know, by the way, anybody ever ask God, God, why did this good thing happen to me? No, I notice we're curiously not that curious about that, are we? Now, I have asked God, God, why did that guy get promoted? He is 
dense as hardwood. I mean, how did that happen? You know, I've asked that question before, but I've never asked God why I got promoted. But my point is, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we can't always explain how that worked out, but I know that God's hand is in it and that God is working. I cannot stress to you enough how this is the absolute center of the idea of contentment. Paul gets to it a little slowly. First he says, step back like me, be grateful, quit complaining about things all the time. Then he says, and by the way, you realize that this isn't all about you, that God's got a plan here. We go, yeah, I think you're right. And then he, he hits us with this and he said, and you know, if you really trust God, you would trust that whether you can explain the circumstances or not, he really is sovereign. Everything is moving ultimately to his purpose. Combine that with the fact that he loves you and you really have nothing to worry about. Now, I know that sounds a little glib, but that is the essence of this idea. That is the heart of the Christian life, is that absolute childlike trust. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, and I just want, I say this because I want you to see everything connects here. The New Testament has one very clear idea that runs all through it. Jesus in his ministry, oh, 30 years before this letter's written, and the disciples, all the kids are coming to him saying, oh, kiss my baby, and my baby cute. And they say, look, the teacher's got other things to do than kiss your slobbering baby, okay? And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. Why? And he makes a point. He said, unless you become like one of these children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? Unless you have a childlike faith, not a childish faith, not an unexamined faith, but a childlike, when I trust you, I 100% trust you. He said, unless you have a faith like that, you're not gonna be able to follow me. And that's exactly what Paul is saying, is do you deep down in your bones trust that God is working in this situation? That makes sense? That's the essence of this. Let that sink in our head and begin to practice that in our lives. I wanna give you another Mother Teresa quote because a lot of what, I'm convinced that Mother Teresa understood this. Now, we may have our differences as Catholics and Protestants. Set that aside for a minute. When it comes down to just that unshakable faith that God is moving, that God is sovereign, then you can say things like this because kind of like the Apostle Paul in the sense that she did not have the world's best life. You know, she's not living the American dream, right? So I like people like that because I say, well, at least what you're saying carries some weight of authenticity to me. She says, be happy in the moment and that's enough. Is that, that's not that different than what Paul's saying. She's not trying to teach on this passage, but he said, I've learned to be content in any circumstance. Why? I have an unshakable faith that God is working that all things work together for good, and I'm all in on his purpose. She said, it's enough for the moment. Each moment is all we need, not more. Be happy now, and if you show through your actions that you love others, including, including those who are poorer than you, you'll give them happiness too. It doesn't take much. It can be just giving a smile. The world would be a much better place if everyone smiled more. So smile, be cheerful, be joyous that God loves you. Now, when I was a pagan, I, I still like Mother Teresa, 
And so I read that and I thought, what a poor deluded old woman, bless her little heart. You know, I thought if you were living my life, you wouldn't go around talking about smiling at people. Then you start to see the world through the lens of Christ and you realize, well, my little self-centered lifestyle wasn't exactly going all that well. You know, and that's another story for another time. And so I meet Jesus and the trajectory of my life changes. But the point is when you have the trust that God is at work, you become free so that you no longer have to worry about everything. And you say, but Terry, how do I know? Maybe it won't turn out the way I want. Oh, let me reassure you, it won't. So can we just move past that? I mean, I don't mind if you just say, you know, there's a pretty good likelihood in any given circumstance, it won't turn out the way I want. And I go, bless you, you are starting to have faith. All right, you, you're a realist. No matter what you do, it won't always turn out the way you want. We know we're not in control, but we have this illusion that we might be in charge, that we might be able to take care of some circumstances. And Paul and Mother Teresa are saying to us, yeah, when you set that aside for a minute and you just have incredible trust in two things, God loves you more than you can possibly comprehend and he is working in every circumstance for good, and that's all I need. I'm not gonna get out of this alive, but I am gonna live forever with him. And so, good things will come my way, and I'll give him thanks. Bad things will come my way, and I hope I can still give him thanks, because that's what the New Testament says. Give thanks in every, all, all over the New Testament. Give thanks in every circumstance. What did Jesus, what are most of his prayers? God, you are awesome. Look what you are doing. And that's, that's who we are and that's what we're about as well, okay? Which brings me to, we gotta do this. We actually have to put this into practice. So here's your assignment. And I will know if you do it because it will be evident on your faces next week. You'll all be smiling. You all look like Mother Teresa, probably. Sorry about that. But seriously, live like you really believe that God is working in every situation for good. That's, that's the key. I want every time something happens, if it's good, thank God for it and said, I knew you were working in this situation. And if it's bad, it's like, I don't see it yet, but I know you're working in this situation. Speak to yourself. I don't know what kind of tapes are playing in your head. By the way, everybody's playing little tapes in their head. I mean, they're digital now, but you're playing a little recording in your head, right? Self-talk. You say, well, I don't talk to myself. Well, you do. It's just not conscious because the world, people, relationships have programmed little scripts in your head. And when it gets triggered and goes, oh, start number three. You know what? This probably isn't gonna work out very well because you know what? Secretly, you're not really that good. You know, you know how bad you are. I mean, that's a script. There are all kinds of scripts. There are all kinds of little messages that get played in our head. The biggest problem is we didn't record most of them. You let other people record most of those. All I'm saying is erase the tapes and let God record the message. And so every time you're in the situation, you find yourself anxious, worried, fearful, start your own tape. Not the one that says, oh, woe is me. 
This is probably gonna be bad. This is probably gonna be worse than I can imagine. Why is this happening to me? The world hates me. It must be your fault. I mean, we play these little scripts. Instead, play the script that says, my God loves me more than I have, can possibly know. My God is sovereign over everything in the universe. History, the future, everything. And he is working all things together for good. Record that little tape in your head, and it won't take very long. A little discipline with that, and all of a sudden, you're gonna see the world very differently. I'm gonna suggest to you that we're gonna see the world the way Paul did and said, you know, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. I know what it's like to have plenty, and I know what it's like to not have enough, but I have learned the secret of being content. And you know what it is? I can do anything through the one who gives me strength. My God is working in my life and everybody else's life. Make sense? Okay, that's your assignment for next week. Last lesson, Paul's got one little twist at the end uh, and, and it's not warranted without that. I mean, you gotta do that or the warranty doesn't apply. No, I'm just kidding. Next week, we're gonna talk about the last little piece of cementing that contentment, okay? Live like you really believe God is working in every situation in your life. Do that for a week and you will feel differently next week. I'll see you guys then, thanks.